What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to Live from Nerdville, presented by Graham Brulow. Today, my special guest is a man who I've known for a long time. It's very difficult to interview because we are such good friends and we're literally family at this point. He has produced all of my records since 2005, over 30 albums and projects. Um, he's one of the great rock producers of the modern era and any era and a man I, I deeply admire and respect and I'm honored to call a friend and, and, a, and literally the brother I never had. So please enjoy my conversation from California to Sydney, Australia with the great Kevin the Caveman Shirley. Hello, Joe. It's nice to see you anyway. I, nice to see you, Kevin. It's nice to be seen. It's been a long Kevin. time. It's been a long time. Now, when was the last time I saw you? In, like, the last time you saw me was when I walked. Where, no, oh, oh, the last time I saw you, the last time I saw you was leaving the ship last year. That's right. Okay. So it's uh, February, February, February twenty. Uh, just before COVID really took took uh, a bite out of the world. Yeah, because we went up to Tampa and we ended up getting I don't know, ten, twelve shows out of the deal, and then had to go home on yeah. March twelfth. So it was. Yeah, it's been a long time. It, you know, it's 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 a very strange world we live in now because in terms of our uh, in terms of the brand new album, Time Clocks, we did the new album for the first time in our 15-year history on uh basically a high-end version of what we're doing now. Basically Zoom and a and a ethernet connection. And you, you produced the entire album from that chair. I had the monitor down low, so you guys could all look up my shorts all day long. Yes, and, and, <laughs> and, and in the press that I've done for the album, I said this was, this was in some ways a great experience to work with Kevin because if I disagreed with him, I literally could just shut the TV off. When do you disagree with me, Joe? Never. We've never had a disagreement on anything. So tell the folks at home, you know, you're one, we were just talking about, you're one of the last producers, mixers that actually use those little slide things in front of you. You still use faders to mix. I still use faders and I enjoy it every day. You know, you like your cars and your trucks and right. I ride a bicycle. Right. You enjoy getting into your old 1950s truck and fixing it up and pottering along. I could I can't barely, I do not see what's what's how that's relevant or exciting or fun. Right. But for me, this is like you driving that thing. For right. me, this is like, I love this thing. I love pushing the faders. I love the feel of EQ. I love the sound of, of compression. I love the sound of analog compression. And when I get, when I have to do it another way, it is, it's not fun. I don't want to be in the business. I could give it flying fuck about it at that point then you know case in point and i'm happy with the result but you know i was just saying we now have dolby atmos it has crept into our world in which your album is superbly mixed by my all-time hero bob clear mountain and so we have this breathtaking rich incredible sonic um album coming out that i think by the way is going to be a benchmark for the world really you can sell things and oversell things. And then this is my truth on this album. I think this is one of the best records that's been made. I mean, this is Pink Floyd level, Zeppelin level record for me. I think it's up there. 
I, 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 I had such a great time making it and, and it was such a unique experience for me because we work a certain way. We work quickly, um, efficiently and in real time. You know, we address arrangement things and the technology. Now, for the folks at home, I would assume because I'm not a, a tech head studio guy, all those yellow speakers, the KRKs that are behind you are part of this Atmos. So it's what a seven point sound. It's it's a so what I it's they, they and, and this of the beauty in this format is that it's a single file format. So in the, we've had surround sound for years and years in actual fact. Just above my shoulder there, just in that stair in that sonic perspective over there, you'll find a Led Zeppelin award for best surround mix of I think 2003. But point being is, apart from dropping obviously just dropping names everywhere I go, um, I've been doing surround for a while and in different formats. We've had five one formats for all the DVDs we've done together. We've had different formats. You know, Song Remains the Same originally came out in Quadraphonic, which was four speakers around. So the formats have been around forever. None of them have stuck because you've always had to have um, a, a, a specific uh, um, protocol for playing them back. And when you play a DVD, you've got to go to, you know, what is your default? Your default is stereo. So if you want to listen in surround, you've got to go and find it on the menu and change things. It's a pain yeah. in the ass. Yeah. And they get them wrong. If you decide to put your default as, this is manufacturing stuff. If you put your default on a DVD on, say, 5.1, because you go, man, I love the 5.1. I want when people put it into their speakers, that 5.1 comes up automatically. What you don't allow for is the fact that when it goes to television and gets broadcast on television, all of a sudden it folds down into two. So they don't take your stereo, they take your 5-1 and fold it down. So if you've actually put like a big swathe of reverb up the back, all of a sudden you're listening on TV and the soup comes up and you go, that's not what I mixed. You know, right. if you were going to play it on stereo, then you should have played stereo. So there's always been a problem with switching from one format to the other. And right. so now for the first time, what Apple are doing or what Dolby are doing with the Atmos format is having one file format. It's compromising audio in some respects, to be honest. But what it means is that you can get into your car, you can have four speakers and a sub in the trunk or something, and it plays for that system. You can get home and you can listen on binaural headphones and it plays in that system. You can put it on in a stadium with 128 speakers down the side and four big subwoofers or 16 subwoofers or whatever. And that same final format plays from stadiums to the headphones. And that's what makes it a game changer because all of a sudden... When you turn your iPhone on and you go and listen to time clocks, it automatically comes up in Atmos on your new Apple right. thing. And if you're playing it in any environment, all of a sudden it's going to play that file format back. And that's what's exciting about the format. So, you know, I mean, over the years, I mean, the audio, there's still the, the, the traditionalist audio files. They have the $20,000, um, uh, you know, turntable and the... You know, the, the Megami cables and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And but over the years, the technology has kind of gotten the consumer. Like I, I'm just a consumer. I have a single like hundred dollar boombox that I, you know, it, it Bluetooth to the phone, and I know, I know it, that it's compromising the audio. And what percentage of the consumers do you think really can hear the difference at this point if like say an atmos system comes out and you're like yeah but the the, the files straight off the, 
the the desks sound a little fatter and a little bit warmer and stuff like that. Do you think it really moves the needle given the fact that most people now are just literally used to consuming music and audio through earbuds and a, and a Bluetooth system? Well, one of the disingenuous things about Apple, and there are a few, um, one of the disingenuous things is all of a sudden they purport to have given us lossless audio. I mean, it's just the great benefactors of our of, 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 and bastions of art. And we had lossless audio before you put it in the computer and dumbed it down for everybody and got everyone used to dumb down stuff. We had lossless audio. We had high tech stuff. We're here 40 years later just reclaiming what there was you know they're not doing us a huge favor no matter what they say i'm there there goes my free apple headphones but anyway um uh so what what i don't think it matters what percentage love high fidelity and what don't i don't think i i, I think what what's important is that we continue to do it in the same ways that we continue to strive for excellence in the product that we bring out artistically and every other way because that's what we're about. And, and in the end, those things matter, whether it's fractions of people or fractions of percents, it's what matters. You know, um, every record we make, we, we make, we try to give the best of ourselves in every way, in 100%. performance wise, as artists in writing, in terms of what, of the, what we present for the audience, there's no such thing as dumbing it down for them. We don't, just go, this is going to work fine. Let's just do it, put it down like that. We never do that. And you could do that. You could save a lot of money by doing that. You could streamline your budgets right down like a lot of people are doing. And you see in the end of the day, it, it comes back to hurt you. And it hurts, the, it hurts us all because it, it dumbs us down. And I think, you know, one of the reasons why you have incredible increase in, in audience numbers and bumps on seats is because you don't compromise in any of those things. You don't compromise in your playing. You don't compromise in your equipment. You don't compromise in the presentation of your show. You don't compromise in anything. You don't compromise in the way we make records or, or the way we right. make DVDs. You, there's no compromise. And every, you know, everything goes backwards and forwards. No one says, look, it's going to cost five grand more if we do this. It's always like, if it's going to make a better product, let's go there. As long, you know, obviously within, within reason. But so I think it doesn't matter how many people are listening on high-end systems and how many people are listening on the phone. I think we have to accommodate everyone. Right. 100% because I, you know, most of the consumers are listening in their car and they're listening into, in, into you know, you know, things that they consumer grade electronics, you know, it's, it's a multi-billion dollar industry every year is consumer grade electronics. And, and, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that music is binary in the sense that, that like to your point is a, a situation where if you do dot your I's and cross your T's and don't compromise, there's, there's an X factor, there's an extra 10 or 15% than if you just sample the kick drum, sample the snare, you know, pieced it all together. And maybe you had the same performance, but it, it's all about whether you're left-handed or right-handed. It's about your, you know, it's like your right hand going to the, to the, to your phone and go like, I want to hear that song again and again and again. It's a difference right. putting music on repeat versus, oh, I heard it. Sounds good. And, and, it, and you kind of move on. It, it, it doesn't hit you on a, on a, a DNA level. And especially in this day and age where, 
everyone can make records at home. And by the way, some are making great records at home yeah. without any, some are making great records on iPhones and that's, that's creative and that's where this stuff has helped us. But in this, in this time, we have so little time to get the attention of someone and to, and to trigger an emotional response or an energetic response, whether it's to dance or to grieve or to whatever. And music does all of these things. And you only have three minutes, you know, at, at best. I mean, often less. I mean, when, you know, the, there are people that are making fortunes out of TikTok music and they're putting 30 second pieces up. And people are responding to this music that they hear in 30 seconds. And those songs are going on to be massive, massive, enormous hits of incredible proportion. So you have just a, such a limited time in which to get their attention. And you really need to try and get it all right in that time. I just read an article. There was, a, there was an artist that um, put a song up on TikTok. Now, that's, that's the red line for me. Okay. I, it, I'll Instagram. I'll Twitter. Somebody else Facebooks. Joe B, you heard it here first, will not be TikToking anything. I think we even have a TikTok page. I, I've never seen it. Um, but that's a red line. I just I, There's enough social media for me oh, for, man, for, for a lifetime. Thank Anathema. You. And I just read an article that somebody put a song on TikTok and, and uh, a gigantic restaurant chain licensed the song. The guy made millions of dollars. Like, yeah. like and, and it was it was that instantaneous. Um you come you you started producing records in 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 a golden era of record production in the sense that records actually sold the, yes yes and mine didn't back in those days but <laughs> no but you i mean you know yeah. by the early 90s you were you were you were you know establishing yourself um you know with the, the likes of dream theater journey rush um iron maiden obviously aerosmith um, you know, Cole Chisel, the Black Crows, you know, but these were all, you know, actual platinum records. There was yeah. like, it's not, it's, it's not graded on a curve. Um, one of the great stories, now, you know, because I, I know you so well for so long, um, how you got the Rush gig was to me a classic Kevin Shirley story about how everybody at some point in time in their life, in their career, when they bet on themselves and want to, want to, you know, I'm going to do this and, you know, all bets are off. You moved to New York, you know, with, with your son, Josh and, and tell the rest of the story. How did, how did you get the rush gig? Well, if I'm to tell everything, there was uh, Jack Ponty was in the first, uh, incarnation of Bon Jovi. He was one of the writers on the original, whatever it's called, 9,600 Fahrenheit record. Yeah. And I'd got hold of Jack, um, Jack had heard a record that I had worked on in a, it called The Baby Animals, a band from Australia called The Baby Animals. And it had, uh, it had done pretty well, it even did well in the States. There was a single called Painless. And, it, and I think guess it was about 1990 or 19, 1990 or so. And it was doing pretty well. And so Jack was producing and he had reached out to me and sent me his name and et cetera. He said, I really like this record that you make. So I, was, I moved to New York and I was living in New York. And and I had done bits and pieces, but not a lot. I was, couldn't get a, I just couldn't get a break. And in 19, 1991, I was in New York City. And I didn't have a job for the whole year. Nothing. I couldn't get arrested. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't do live sound. I couldn't do anything. And um, 
I was staying at a hotel in the Upper West, in a, a residential hotel in the Upper West Side in New York City. And um, the, uh, the manager of the hotel, a guy named uh, uh, Lee Rosen, he was like an angel from heaven. And I would go to him month after month and say, Lee, I don't have the money. And he just said to me, you'll pay me back. I'm not worried about it. So we lived for a year in New York City in a hotel where they changed the sheets every day, where we had hot and cold water every day, where we had television every day. And I didn't pay for it. I didn't pay for it. And I just said, Lee, I just, I, I, you know, and we had a little apartment with a balcony in New York City right. and on, uh, on 72nd Street next to, the, next to the, the Dakota where John Lennon was shot. And, and so I had, we lived there and I just couldn't get a break. And uh, around uh, January of 92, I didn't know what to do. I just didn't know what to do at all. And, and, and Jack Party called me and he said, uh, you should send uh, Peter Collins a tape of some of the stuff that you've done. He, I know he's looking for an engineer. So I cobbled together. I borrowed money from people to buy a blank CD. I mean, this sounds pathetic. I had someone put some DAT stuff on the CD. I borrowed more money to, uh, to send it to Peter Collins. I had nothing. We had $8 for the month. I went down to the IPA. I think it was called the supermarket, you know, Don Columbus. And they had a special on spaghetti, two packs for a dollar. And I went spent, huh? The Pioneer. Pioneer. That's it. Pioneer. I went to the Pioneer and I and I bought uh, sixteen packs of spaghetti so that my son at least was going to eat. We went down to the McDonald's on Seventy Second Street and we stole all the little packets of ketchup. And so for the that, that's what we were eating. We were eating spaghetti and ketchup, mm -hmm. and you know, um, and every now and then somebody would come along with a bottle of Jack Daniels and you'd. You know, you knock that back because that's the way we were. But uh, so I cobbled together the money and I sent Jack, uh, Peter Collins this tape and he, and he called me up. He said, we like what you've done. So uh, um, we'd like you to come and see the band Rush. So I said, OK. Now I, I bought one of their records before as a youngster, about 82, 83, I think it was called Power Windows. But I wasn't that familiar with Rush as, as you know, as a lot of people are. And I sent it to Peter Collins. He said, great, we'd like you to fly up to Toronto to meet the band. So I said, okay, he goes, we'll send you a ticket. I didn't have anything for Josh. And so I had organized for a babysitter to come and hang with him for the day while I went up to see Rush. She said to me, I've got a wedding tonight at uh, 6.30. I have to be at it. And uh, I said, no worries. I have a 10, 10 a.m. flight there and I'm on the 3 a.m. back. So even with traffic, I think I'll be back five o'clock latest. We went up to Toronto. Went to go and see the guys. And we had a lovely meeting. Um, you know, we're still friends and, uh, you know, that's testament to that. But it was a good meeting. I was the first of the engineers that they were meeting for this thing. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we got back to the airport in Toronto on Friday afternoon at my, for my flight. And, um, and the U.S. authorities wouldn't let me back to the country. And they said, you don't have any money. You don't have an ongoing air ticket. You shouldn't be here working, and um, and we're not letting you in the country. And I said, but but but, I have a I'm a single dad. I have a son who's two years old or three years old in New York. And they said, you know, whatever. You don't come back into the country. That's just the way it is. Um, so I didn't know what to do. I had n I had no money. I had nothing. I mean, talk about bones of your ass. So I walked. I didn't know what to do. 
I walked back down Customs Hall in Toronto and they had phone boxes on the wall and I, I didn't know what to do. So I called Peter Collins. Mm -hmm. I, we were also, I don't know who else to call. And he goes, hello, caveman. I said, hello, Peter. I said, uh, I need to know if you want me to do the rush gig. And he goes, well, we'll let you know in about six weeks, I think. You know, we have a few more interviews to do. Um, but uh, we're not there yet. But we had, a, you know, we enjoyed your day, our, our time with you today. So uh, I said, well, I need to know now. I need to know now. I'm stuck at the airport. They won't let me in. And I'm either going to go on to Australia from here or else, um, you know, I'll, uh, I'll stay behind and, and do the job. <laughs> I mean, who does that? Right. And by the way, who wants that guy? Right. And so so uh, he goes, I'll call you back. So I read him the number. You remember phone boxes used to have the number on them. It would be like, you know, 415, whatever it was, the number was up there. He goes, okay, just stay by the phone and I'll call you back. And so now I'm standing in the hallway between immigration and customs hall at this phone box. And like people are walking by and I'm just standing there waiting for the phone to ring. And a flight attendant from the morning show from the morning flight came by and said, oh, hi, how are you doing? And uh, I said, oh, that's a long story, but, you know, not so well. So she said, well, you know, um, well, let me know if I can. I'll, I, so I gave her a brief rundown. And so she stood by and she said, well, let me see if I can help. She, you know, so um, Peter called me back about 20 minutes later and he said, the guys have had a meeting. And um, they said, they'll give you a chance. They'll, they'll give you a chance. So I said, well, that's terrific. And now there's one other thing. And by the way, it's Friday afternoon. Right. said, well, there's one other thing. I need some money. And they said, well, how much do you need? I said, I don't know. I've, I've got to get my son from New York, blah, blah, probably $5,000. And they said, okay, fine. Um, meet Peggy Ciccone, who was their you know, manager person. Meet Peggy tomorrow morning. She'll come meet you at 8 o'clock in the morning somewhere. And she gave me an address. And I said, okay, great. And Peggy came in on Saturday morning. And she brought me $5,000 in a brown bag, mm -hmm. cash dollars. Right. And um, I had stayed with that girl that night. She put me up on the sofa, took me to a roof party. and But it, my mind was obviously like frazzled. I mean, it was just bizarre. Snow was starting to come down January. And, and then um, I got hold of somebody. I, I got an apartment that day. It's Saturday morning. I got an apartment in the middle of... Toronto just to hang out for a couple of weeks and then I called people in New York and I got them to go to my apartment and pick Josh up and fly with Josh to Canada I mean I, to not, I don't even know how this is possible anymore who leaves a country with someone else's child but yeah. you know it's like all of, every, all of the above I don't know how everything happened anyway you managed to fly in with Josh I paid him about the bulk of the $5,000 to do it because he flew in, flew in with Josh and flew back and his name was Peter. I don't. I think he had he had uh, a hidden agenda of being my manager, but it never sort of followed through. But I think that was, might have been the game plan. But he was literally in and out in that day. And then I stayed for a while, and then uh, and then uh, then we did the Rush album, which was great. And we, I left, and in, in, so there was three months with them, and it was just fantastic. I mean, you know, they put they had accommodation and they had food and money, but I combination and food and we had a nanny and enough money to pay the nanny and then I decided at that point once that record was done I said I've had enough of trying to crack the United States I've just had enough it's just it's like I do not 
you know, I'd much rather be a medium-sized fish in a small pond than just be eaten up by the minnows. And um, so I came back to Australia and I found a little apartment on the beach, not far from where I am now, actually, probably a mile and a half. And I was blissfully happy there. And it was $1,000 a month for my rent. And, I, you know, it, it was, that wasn't hard money to make. He was in, private, in public school. He had health care, as Australia has. And everything was rosy. And then I went and fucked it all up by, you know, finding Silverchair and producing their first record. Right. <laughs> and then that sold like 5 million records. And so I moved. So I went, on, went to the States to go and have meetings with everyone. And I immediately got to produce Journey and then Aerosmith and then the Black Crows, and then Dream Theater, literally like in that order. Those were the next four records I did. So, yeah, crazy. Do you think, do you think that, um, you know, and I, I'm a firm believer in this. I, I feel that everybody who is driven in life, who makes something of themselves, there's always a common denominator of, at some point, your back was completely against the wall. I mean, and like a brick wall, there was no other, there was no other choice but to move forward, you know, uh, you know, or, or just quit altogether. Well, I don't know the story of Adam Levine, but I think generally that's probably true. Yeah. I mean, but you know, everybody's got to pay their dues at some point. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, oh, it's, definitely, you know, I mean, definitely. I, I, and I'll tell you what happens if you don't pay your dues, then you don't, uh, it, it, there are people that it just happens on, but it, it doesn't stick. Like you, the, like you have to respect success. Otherwise, it doesn't hang around. Like yeah. success is so hard, so hard to win. That it's it's. I mean, I I, I totally understand how young people who make it lose it because it's it's just tough. You know, you don't you don't when you when you. That's why those all those that's why all of those guys that I worked with, Robert Plant and Jimmy Page and all of those guys, Steve Harris from Iron Maiden, all those guys from England that were the the the, the baby boomers, the, the end of the war kids. Right. Um, that's why they have such respect for money. Because they know what it's like not to have any. They've been yeah. there, you know. Yeah. And um, and those guys do not waste a dime. They have plenty, they save it. I, I don't know any of those guys that waste any of their money. But it's just, you know, back in the days, even post-war, where there was food rations, there was no money, the country was in ruins, you know, and it, and it, and it, 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 it kind of gets into your DNA. I mean, like, I remember, you know, when, when our family didn't have any money in the mid-80s, and, you know, it was, it was tough. I remember that when I was eight years old. And I also remember moving to New York just on a, a wing and a prayer and buying peanut butter and jelly and ramen noodles at the... You know, and you're just going, you got to make something happen or else yeah. you go home or you don't have a place. Talk to me about your upbringing in, in South Africa. I will. But, you know, there's another common denominator in, in there. And the other common denominator is is also taking a risk outside of your comfort zone. And you've done that. You've yep. done that with me on numerous occasions that we know about. But yeah. you've done that. You haven't stopped doing that. You haven't stopped getting out of your comfort zone. Like you were perfectly happy being that guy and you got, you know, then it was like, 
if I want to go there, what's it going to take to go there? You're going to have to make these changes, and that's not comfortable. And if you have to go there, you have to make these changes, and that's not comfortable. And very often, it's like the more money, more problems things. But, you know, there's, you have to, there, there are sacrifices in those changes that you make too, sacrifices of happiness and comfort and, and all sorts of things that you, that you do in order to achieve something. So I think that's another common denominator. Yeah, it's it's a total risk. You never, you never, ever, ever, um, uh, you 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 never stop taking risks. You never stop kind of challenging yourself. Um, but you know, a lot of times, and I always tell this, I go, the mark of a great producer, and I and I've had the honor of working with two great producers, yourself and Tom Dowd. And the common denominator was 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 that you that you take an artist and you you almost protect them from themselves you 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 protect them from their default setting and and because everybody has a default setting i have a default setting you know what i mean and, well, and lots of it's, them it's and, human and nature it's human nature you protect you yourself in, and you go i can do this and i can do that and it's fine but your your job being objective on the big picture is like well maybe it could be better you know and you have to be willing to go down that road and challenge yourself for, uh, unless run the risk of making very predictable music you know and and that's that's not something that you know i think a lot of people want to you know they, they don't want to be the lukewarm water they want to be either hot or cold and I th i'll tell you one other you know another factor in that that we have that i that i have to and do give credit to is is your manager roy yeah. who has done exactly the same thing he has jumped whenever it's been uncomfortable he has made choices that have been difficult. He is not interested in making friends as much as he is about. Well, he's a manager making money, right. but it's but his but his his gains are always about making big steps. What if we play the Royal Albert Hall and we put all our money in there and no one comes? I mean, that's that's it. By the way, that's the end of your career. That's the end of your partnership at that point. Well, it's, it's also, like, well, you know, I mean, that, that evening was, I knew it was the beginning of the beginning of the beginning of the end. I mean, I knew that going in. I mean, you know, yeah. the, I'm too pragmatic not to, not to know that. Talk to me a little bit about your upbringing in South Africa, because people associate you a lot with Australia, but, but not a lot of people know that you, you were born in, in Johannesburg and, and yeah. started your recording career in South Africa. That's right. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's a, this is a difficult one because uh, you know you don't you don't choose where you're born. It's it's no. uh, it's that's not the choice you make. You don't choose when and where you're born, and uh, and so you're as old as you are, and you are descended from somewhere. But um, other than that, it, it, you know, it was always difficult. It was difficult for me growing up in apartheid. It was difficult for me. It was difficult for me because it wasn't. I was uncomfortable, but I didn't know why, and that's weird. And and I, I, it didn't take me till I was eighteen or nineteen for me to actually really understand racism in my core. Like there, like there was. You grow up with an inherent feeling of superiority, and 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 and. That's really hard when it, when you realize what a lot of shit that is, and it it happened to me when I traveled when I was nineteen years old or eighteen years old, and it and it it 
really shocked me. So it's a tough time. My, you know, my younger brother who has since died uh, uh, was in the army. I managed to avoid going to the army. And, um, and my parents escaped South Africa with, with uh, my brother to, you know, to get away from the military, he left my, my, my mom and sisters behind to sell a house. And by the time they left, I was too old to leave with them, you know. And so I had to stay behind in South Africa and make a career, you know, make some right. sort of a career for myself. And I went to go and work for Tully, who builds the microphones that right. you use on your, on your amplifiers now. That's right. And um, I went to work for Tully, as a, as a, and he taught me how to, you know, in, how to make records in a recording studio. But he made jingles. He made advertising jingles. And it took me a couple of years until I... I realized that I wasn't, didn't care that the money was much better making jingles than records. I wanted to make records. I mean, the romance of albums, the romance of records, the romance of, 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 of so many things about the album, from, from everything, you know, from, well, you know what it's like, the romance of, of good vinyl, of, of, of artwork and booklets and, decent audio and fantastic playing all that stuff was everything for me and yeah. the individualism of it it's like you know you'd go to make jingles and then with the lindrum it just come in and every lindrum pattern sounded right and then you'd listen to a record and john barnum sounded a certain way you could hear it was him and you listen to ian pace you know and you could go oh you know he's got a certain way that he plays that those things i mean it's not it's like the time isn't different but there's a feel that's different and then you had joey kramer at aerosmith and the way he pushes the, everything forward with that snare drum and then you would listen to richie haywood with that super lazy backbeat and all of a sudden it's like well you know that's why i'm in music because of of musicians and because of right. art and those are the things that resonate with me so i'm not talking about south africa but i so i moved into making records and i made some records there for a couple of years um uh, with the local artists, I had a band there. We had had my first number one single down there with an artist um, who I literally walked into uh, a bar and I'd never made a record before. And I said, right. hey, do you want to make a record? And he said, okay. And so I went to Tully and I said, I found this guy, this kid, Robin, old down the road and can I make a record? And Tully was like, yeah, sure. You can use Tuesday nights to use, make your record. You can start at eight and you can go and lock up when you finish and come in on Tuesday nights. So... Robert and I used to go in on Tuesday nights and I didn't know how to make records at all. I mean, um, we had a Lindrum and, and we had a recording system that Tully had built. We had a multi-track system that he built. And basically you'd record out of the left side and play back on the right side. So it was a one instrument uh, recording system. It was, you know, very, was archaic. And so I would, we'd, I would learn to lay out tracks and layer, layer things and put instruments on. I would play on them and, Robin would play on them and, you know, we'd, and sing on them and we'd put drum programs or we'd record drums. And we also only had one effects unit back then. I think it was an, a Rev 7, I think it was, or something like that. So you would print all of your effects right. with each track. So you want, vo you want reverb on the vocal? Like commit to tape. So everything was done. You want delay on the guitar solo? You couldn't go back from that. So that was pretty horrendous. But uh, those were the early days. And then... And then I had a few uh, a few hits. Uh, um, quite poignantly, I did a record with a guy called David Kramer in South Africa, and he was quite a big uh, Afrikaans artist. He was an Afrikaans folk artist, and I did a record for him 
Um, and I, I pretty, I nearly killed his career because we did a political record and in English and all his other records had been sort of folksy, uh, sort of John Hyatt type, right. uh, like colloquial rec recordings. And I went and did this one about, you know, the bullets and apartheid and guns and monkeys and <laughs> all sorts of stuff. And I mean, it was awful. But it's funny because there was one song on there called, um, uh, I think it was called, it was a song about leaving and leaving everything behind and leaving. And when we escaped from South Africa to come to Australia, and we literally had to escape, and that's another story. I'm not going to do it now. But um, I got on the plane and we were like escaping. And man, this song was playing on the airplane as we took off from South Africa when we left there. It was just like crazy, like just, just mind-bogglingly crazy. What was the first time you heard Slow Gin? Uh, we used to play Slow Gin in a band. And I had a band called The Council. And I remember hearing the Tim Curry version. And it knocked my socks off. I mean, maybe because there was cursing in it. I don't know. But the song, actually, the 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 despair in the music you could hear and and it wasn't just in the lyric it was in everything it was in the playing it was in um i always thought it was old slick but it wasn't it was uh, was uh, it, uh dick dick wagner and uh, dick wagner i mean the hunter it, dick wagner. Oh, the playing on it was so great and tim curry has that voice slow gin slow gin and it was just it really got to me and and we used to play it in a band and we went to play one outdoor festival and we were warned before we went on not to use any curse words. And right. it was a family show. This is South Africa. So in an Afrikaans like area, very, very, very conservative. And we got on stage and I said to the singer, Brian Davidson, who used to sing in a band with Trevor Rabin called Freedom's Children. Ah. And I said to Brian, just do it, give it, give it everything. Anyway, we some things did. never change. Some things never change. Some things never change. We, Brian's since dead, but um, we got off stage. The police were waiting for us, through us in the back of the wagons and, uh, and took us off in a town called Belleville. Funnily, funny, I'll tell you what's weird. This life is like that. When we got off the boat last time I saw you, mm -hmm. I went to LA and I went to go and work with Trevor. And we did an, we did an orchestral arrangement of the Ballad of John Henry, which I don't even know if you've, how much of it you've heard yet, but it's... Well, we, we, in theory, we will be unleashing our orchestra show next year at Red Rocks. You know, it was exactly. 2020. It didn't happen this year, but I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to anything with a crowd, you know? Well, that's right. Anyway, so I saw you and I flew to LA and I spent some time with Trevor. Right. And uh, he did this arrangement of John Henry, which is, which is uh, just insane it's insanely amazing and i can't wait for you to get out there and do it anyway funnily enough i got a text from him yesterday and he said uh, asked me if i'd mix the songs busy doing a new album and he asked me if i'd mix the songs so i sent him a message i said 40 years later because you know he was one of my idols growing up oh yeah so in 1976 77 he was in a band called rabbit in south africa right. and i was always a huge deep purple fan and Man, they used to do Highway Star, and Trevor nailed Blackmore solo. You know what Trevor's playing yeah. is like. Yeah. And yeah. so back then, and he nailed it, and I was absolutely floored. And 
So it comes around 77 to whatever we are now, much, much, much later. 44 years. I know this well, because I know you do. When I was born. Um, one of the things I, 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 I think the, the folks would like to know is um, obviously, you know, your relationship with Iron Maiden is has been almost 25 years at this point. Um, um, and I remember when you were like, I, I, by the time this will air, the new Iron Maiden record will be out. But I remember you did that record before we even attempted the first, the first go around of our Abbey Road, which got delayed eight months. So you did that early in 2019. Are you relieved That's to right. have it finally come out? Yeah, I'm relieved to have it come out. And I, and, and I think it's great. And, and. And I think it's great, and I think it's awesome, and I, and I love working with the band. I, and um, I, I mean, I get so much stick for working with that band. I tell you, they are the hardcore fans. They like their music, but they don't like me in the in the production chair. And it's it's uh, I I just you know I sometimes wonder if it's a bit, if it's a little bit Nickelback where it's just you know, it just becomes the thing to say, but man, they just don't dig me in that chair at all. But the band love it. And we have a great relationship and it's a, it's a big, big job making a record with those guys. It's huge. It's a lot, it's difficult and it's a lot of work and it's a lot of brain cells making those records, believe it or not. But you know, I mean, the proof is in the success. I mean, the, the success yeah. you guys have had together as an entity for 25 years you know, it's it's you know they're one of the biggest bands, if not one of the biggest bands uh, in heavy metal, if, if not the world. I mean, they they're stadium fillers, and and oh yeah. You know, so it's you know again, it's like you know the loud minority can shout as loud as they want, but it the proof is in the success of the music and and the records and the anticipation of it. So I'm you know it's interesting because it's it's they they work in such an old school way. Like never in a million years will you and I make a record two years and, and let two years go before, you know, putting it out, you know what I mean? But they, they, they deal in huge, you know, in, in old school, you know, time frames where it's like, Oh, we're going to two or two years from now. We'll put a record out two years from now. We're uncompromising. I respect that. Yeah. Nobody else does that anymore. No, it doesn't. And, and uh, it, no, it doesn't. And, and, and it's really cool, but the, there's going to be a, by the way, we're about to run into a huge problem with that because because they, like so many bands, work in their own in their own patterns. They they have a five year cycle that they do. They have recording, right. they have touring, they do a legacy tour, they have uh, promotion, they have time off, and then they have normally a local, uh, you know, a new album tour as yeah. well. So they you know they incorporate all that stuff, and it's a big five year plan for them. And you know, time off going into writing, going into recording, comes around next five years. Well. This last two years has screwed that up for everybody because everyone's been home. No yeah. one's been making any money. And everybody needs to, I mean, apart from the fact that everybody wants to get out and see bands and everyone wants, wants to get out and tour, everybody needs to make some money. There's like, there's no money. There's, you know, Apple have destroyed the streaming uh, income for artists. And as much as they're great benefactors of art, but they really, uh, there's no money in royalties anymore. The only money is coming from bums on seats and there's the, the good thing about that and which is what some people don't understand the good thing about that is if you make good records mm -hmm. people come to see you play live 
if you skimp on those records and save money, people just see you as, you know, not the act that you used to be anymore. Yeah, it's a point of diminishing returns for sure. Yeah, you, know, you have to you have you have to keep <coughs> you have to keep the foot on the gas, or else it or else it, it you do see decline in your in in just your people's interest in and it's like, you know, we always run the risk of putting out too much stuff. But because we try not to compromise anything about what we do, I think it's just we have a reputation for putting out quality stuff. I'll be a lot of it. You know, they, you know, they put out one record every five years. We put out five every one every year. Yeah. So it's, but it's, it's also, it's a testament to how far in advance we work and how far in advance we plan, which I got from you because you're a planner. You go ahead and be like, I need to, you know, like, what are you doing in, july of 2024 i don't know what i'm doing tomorrow you know that's right you know i i i have a vague idea tomorrow but but i have to we have to right um one of the things i want to do because this is on um on the on the on the cusp of uh, the new album time clocks um but before i get to that before we go to track for track um i want to ask you what's the most impressive thing you've ever seen in the studio as a producer the most impressive thing yeah like just uh, from from a musician or, or whatever i saw i was making a dream theater record uh, falling into infinity and i remember vocals being very difficult with um, james and he, he not only not least of all because he needed to have an hour's warm-up and it had to have the right reverb for the warm-up environment and We'd go into the studio and get his headphones on, and he would delay would be wrong, and the and the, and the delay would be wrong, and the reverb would be wrong, and I remember being frustrated at it, and um, and and Doug Pinnock walked in from King's X, and uh, he was going to sing a vocal on there, and he came in, he took one look at the lyric. Smoked a big, <laughs> a big blunt, and went in and sang in one take. And man, it exploded out of out of the speakers. And that was like, wow! Like that's how you do it. And that was one of those things. I there's I've had a few like really special moments. And uh, and one of those was yours. I, I loved when you did the the back end solo of um, uh, No Place for the Lonely, which for me was like I remember that clear as a bell where we because i have this tendency to suggest these long solo outros after the song has been and gone and i go i got an idea let's keep going and uh and so you know that was one of those ones where anton was and then you just laid it one time round and that solo is that on the record and you never played it twice and it's just like an amazing solo. And that was one of those moments. Never I discount did. the motivation of lunch. lunch. <laughs> I, or, the, I or the martini. Yeah, it was lunch or a martini. It was like, <laughs> I think lunch is here. All right, let's just get this last bit. Okay. Let's get I'll tell you another one we did. I cut another song. I cut Journey, When You Love a Woman, from the album Trial by Fire. One take, including solo, including everything. That song was Journey playing live. And 
And they hated me. I'm not hate is a strong word, but there was a lot of pushback when we did that record because that was their, um, their coming back together again record in 95. And I hadn't been a Journey fan, but so I, I did my homework and I listened to their stuff. And when they all came back together again, we went to rehearsals for the first time and they sounded as rusty as anything. It didn't sound like a special band. Didn't sound like, didn't sound like it had a spark. Didn't sound like it had a signature. And that's not taking away from Neil or John or any or Steve Perry or any of those guys, but it didn't have anything. And so we were just, we, I think we were scheduled to record, to do pre-production for four weeks. And I think I pushed it to nine weeks where we just had, where I sat in a room in Oakland. I sat in the chair and I had the band on a little riser. And so for nine weeks, Journey played to me, like just played. And they played all the stuff live. And the demos that they'd cut, they'd cut with the drum machines. And they said, well, let's use the drum machine. It sounds good on the demo and everything else. And I was like, I want to hear the band play it live. And we just did everything in that nine-week pre-production. We went through guitar solos and we went through drum fill. You, you know me. I mean, yeah. sometimes I'm a nightmare. But for nine weeks, they played in that stand thing. And when we did When You Love a Woman, they went into the studio and just played it. And... I think it was a, a number one single. So, and well, that's a, you know that's a that, that's a that's a an era where you could we could take nine weeks. You know, we're lucky even now with a, even a decent budget. We're lucky to get nine days. We do nine yeah. days, maybe ten days. Um, the hardest kind of record to make. What's what's as a producer as you walk in, and you probably can read the signals. Um, what's the hardest kind of record that you make as a producer the hardest record to make is the hardest records to make are when they're not confident in you or or they may be confident in you because they get you there but they there's an underlying sense of either entitlement or mistrust or something where you just when you have to fight to make a record, I'd just rather not be there. You know, I just, I really, I'd just rather not be there. If it's, you know, if a mix is too difficult, if something is too difficult, it's not that I don't want to fight through it. I just, it's e either you're close or you're a long way off. Right. And if you're close, then that's easy. Now, is that the, like, not to give out your age, but is that the mature caveman talking or is that the 35-year-old Bull in a china shop caveman no that's 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 the way it's been i remember records way back when where you needed them because you needed the money and you go into studio and 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 um and and they, they, they're tough to make you can't pull anything out of those sessions you can't you know you can't um you, and the funny thing is the better the musicians are and clearly i think there's a reason for that right you know uh but the better the musicians are, like, the easier it is. And the easier mixes are. You know, I just, yesterday I mixed a track for Europe. And, um, and Joey just called me up like two days ago. He's like, can you mix the song for us? And you go, okay, great. And, you know, I'm doing all of these mixes for unsigned bands, like which, for, which I've been doing for in August. And I have to tell you, they are really hard to mixes to do. I mean, I've, I'm enjoying the challenge in terms of, trying to make them sound decent, but they're badly recorded. They're badly constructed. 
They badly performed. And I, I, if I say 95%, I'm probably being generous. But like, I'm trying to give them a hand by making these demos, or at least their records sound decent. And it's not easy. And, you know, I get a record from, from, Europe, from Europe and live recording, and it's like sensational. It's like, really, those guys are just fantastic musicians, all of them, you know. So it's different because, like, there's, I, I would imagine there was a period of time in your career based on the major label model when, you know, you would, you would, you know, it, okay, so the president of or vice president of, of the label would be like, okay, big band, insert name here. Um, we're going to make a record. We're signing you, give you a million dollar advance, and we want. Kevin, we're, uh, Kevin Shirley is going to produce it. Do you think that now the difference between the, that era of, of the business and now where most people now are, are calling you going, hey, will you do this for us? Do you think that changes the dynamic, meaning like there's less resentment or like, you know, some people would walk in with an ad like, what, you know, why do we have to do this? I know better, blah, blah, blah. Do you think do you think that's changed in the last 25 years? It's a difficult one for me because I have been, and I know this word gets used too often, but I've really been blessed with people. You know, I did Led Zeppelin when Jimmy Page called, and I did Aerosmith after having lunch with Steven Tyler. And, you know, and, and so I've been very lucky in that, in dealing with people, the artists as well. When we do an Iron Maiden record, the manager doesn't hear the record till we're done let alone labels, let alone anybody else. So I'm, I'm very lucky. I don't have to deal with anyone when I make a record. And same thing with you. I mean, Roy was hands-on in the beginning, and now he's like, I know what I do best, and I know what you do best, and I know what you do best. And um, so I don't know. I've not really been in that situation of having to deal with people in the last 25 years that I haven't wanted to deal with. You know, yeah. That's, I've been lucky that way. I, you know, I, I ran into that situation with a with a, uh, an artist I pro I produced a, a bit ago, and at the time there was a management company that was involved who came to me was like, well, what during the recording um, we want to come in and see how it's going. I said you can come and see how it's going, but if anybody says anything, I will literally get up out of the chair and walk out of the room because I don't I'm not interested in your opinion. I'm not, in, you know, and in, in, in having that, having that, having that negotiating power be like, listen, let the experts do what they do. We're not interested in outside opinions. We're not certainly not interested in radio. No. Um, so here's where we got caveman. So the new album time clocks was recorded yes. as, a, as a, as a three piece band, Anton Fig, Steve Mackey on the bass, yours truly in New York on a zoom call. The, the tracks were then sent via auto gyro um, to Sydney. And the next thing I know, the first thing I hear is didgeridoo. So it's actually, nothing was sent. So it's in, you know, in, um, if anybody really wants to know. So what we did was we got hold of the studios. Nothing was sent. We actually really did this in real time. We did it in real time, but but the 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 monitoring was less. You got all of the tracks the same day, so you got all I the did. mics and everything. I did, and, and I listened to it as it went down. I listened to. I had. I put you so, know one bass guitar, changed the bass part. So in terms of like like your your, give me your take on Notches, the very first song. 
because pilgrim pilgrimage is 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 an instrumental it's a yeah. it's, it's a world worldly song that um that i played on in new york and you guys got the track up and it kind of introduces the record but when we get into it notches is the first song exactly and the and by the way pilgrimage is part of the first song i just i didn't want it to play it to really necessarily play um for for a minute before the song starts but there's intros intro you and i have always had um, a theme for when we do a record and yeah. we've always had a theme for when we do a record going back into all the way back to the beginning um where we'd go let's make a swampy record let's make a bluesy record let's rock this one up etc etc so we didn't so much have that this time around because we didn't we weren't able to have that same immediate connection and a lot less martinis with the with coronavirus coming between us right but i did in my mind have i did have in my mind that this was going to be transitional album and it was not only transitional it was about it was about joe bonamassa and it was about um and this all came from the lyric in in notches where you sing i've been all around the uh, been all the way around the world um but I always come back to the blues and that lyric there was was it for me and i know we've gone so many things and we've talked about world music we went to carnegie hall and we uh, went to the v vienna opera house and we embraced um, uh, uh, you know foreign musicians there and we did that at carnegie and we've done this a couple of times we played these games we went to greece and made a record so there's always been this international thing about this. And so as soon as we got to this, and as soon as we got to, to Notches, um, it was like you and Charlie Starr wrote this perfect, this, the perfect vehicle for the song, even if it was a much smaller song when you wrote it, 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 in terms of like, you know, it's now become like this big world piece with all sorts of things going on in the middle and, and, and all that. But it was the song that just, it was in the embodiment of the album for me. And so, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to try and say somehow in, and whether people understood it or not, that this was a huge journey that we've been on together and that you've been on. And I've been lucky enough to be part of. And from playing small blues clubs as three piece guys playing Pratt blues to where we are with this record now as an enormous journey. And the only thing that's made that journey possible has been the fan base that's come with you and the fan base that's grown and come with you. And so part of the, part of this for me was I wanted, you know, I wanted to somehow um, paint this landscape of, I, 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 I don't really want to use I all the fucking time, but it, you know, I want to paint the landscape where, uh, you, I want you, you know, to encourage you and everyone to paint a landscape where we see that there's this big journey and that everyone comes with you on this journey. And no one, you know, no one minds where you go. They don't mind if you go into, if you veer off into jazz or if you veer off into rockabilly or if you veer off into whatever, whether we embrace big classical things, whether we, we embrace trad blues and all that, they come with you. And that really is a journey. And I was inspired by, you know, I, I started looking at journeys in terms of bigger things. Same with the, you know, slow train. It was, there's a lot, there's a lot more underneath these songs than people realize. And I started looking at journeys and I looked at one called um, the Campo de Santiago, where 
people walk, they take like four weeks to walk across Spain. It's like a, remil, uh, a relig religious pilgrimage. And they go on this walk across Spain. And so part of that whole thing with the pilgrimage thing at the front was that it's a journey and it's this walking journey. And there's notches in the walking cane. And that's why there are church bells in there. There's villages on the way and there's birds and there's a didgeridoo because that's part of Australia. And right. it's a big, big journey that you are going through and you always come back to the blues. And so that's where it comes from. I, I, I can tell you, I can tell you, you thought about it way more than I did. When Charlie goes, I got, I got miles under my wheels, notches in my walking. I go, I go, I couldn't think of a better way to celebrate my 44th birthday. I just <laughs> feeling old, my friend. I was just feeling old. Yeah. So that's what I do. I sit here and I, you know, I ruminate. It's and just, oh, it's a, it's a great way to think. Um, we'll we'll get through a couple of these ones. Um, I a heart that never waits is a, like one of one of one of my favorite songs we've done in a long time. I think it's just it it, it kind of encapsulates a lot of the same the, the things that I love about the 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 hybrid of blues and rock. It's it, intrinsically I can sit here with an acoustic guitar and be kind of it would sound like a almost like a traditional almost Robert exactly type of song, but then when you plug in and you know mess with it it takes on a life of its own and it's got the, the the thing it's got a pesky thing called a chorus which are hard to write in the blues it's very hard yep. to write because in the traditional sense it's all been done it's all been said before and and you know you always want to create a lift so that was my that was my my goal with that song and you know to try to put some hooks in the thing but but still keep it in you know on, on its on its you know, the, the to its core, a pretty traditional blues song. Yeah, I, it's a it's a trad blues song with a little bit of a soul twist, and um, and and that's where the chorus comes in, and and the sentiment is all blues and all soul, and I, it's I you know it's it it it's pretty close to a perfect song, I think. I I like that song. It's one of my favorites. Um, the, the title track, Time Clocks, was something that we had that I pitched, I believe, in June or July of 19. We kind of forgot about it when we had to come home from London um, and regroup because we had to regroup. And um, literally, when Anton broke his ankle. And it always stuck in my mind as something that would be cool to cut. And I'm glad we didn't cut it at Abbey Road because it wasn't the right time, it, no pun intended. This was the this was the right record for that song to 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 be on. And and you know it goes to prove that not every good song that you write is the right time to cut it. It's nice to no. reserve. That's right. And you know it's this a lot of you know it's not like we have the benefit of months and months. That, well, we do, I suppose, but we we don't take the the benefit of spending months and months on a record. And by the time, I do remember it coming around first time around uh, when we did the first pre-production in London. But we, there were a lot of things that were angling in the same way. There was the, the B-Bender was new. We had um, the opening track on, um, on Royalty. Yeah. Uh, and you had a few tracks where the B-Bender was starting to make an appearance on there. And I think... For me, there was a sameness about some of those things where I was like, it's too much on the same record to keep doing that. 
Yeah. And, and also, you know, there's a fatigue sets in when you're only doing, when you're doing a record in seven days, as we did Royal Tea and, yeah. and, and, and pretty much every other record we've ever done. But there's a fatigue that sets in where, you, where it's hard to conceptualize where this is going to go, where it hasn't already gone before in that, in, in that session. Yeah, and with, and with those musicians. Yeah. You, you know, perspective. Yeah. what's that? Yeah, you do lose perspective. You lose perspective. And also, there's just so much you can come up with because you're just brainstorming constantly and you have reference points. And, and if you keep coming back to the same reference points because of something, then it's that, that's too samey. So, you know, I do remember that. And when we came around, when Time Clock came around this time, well, from the... Pre-production. We so what we did pre-production by Zoom, which which was really fascinating and interesting. I think. Yeah. I think this whole thing has been really interesting. I think making a record has been interesting because there's banter, but there's not wasted banter. Although you know somebody who's an hour into this thing might think that there's been a lot of wasted banter, but um, there's not there's not really any banter. It's like. We need that done. Can you do that? Can you do that? Can you do that? I don't like that. I don't like that. And there's so you have a very clear objective every time you speak. It's like I need a result. I'm going to say something. I need a result. I'm not going to tell you about dinner with whoever last night or whatever I saw on the way in. It's like objective, objective goal, you know, goals and objectives. And that's what we had. It's like two in the morning for me. <laughs> for one thing, yeah, it's, it's like crazy hours yeah you, you're up at three o'clock anyway i i'm i'm you know it's um, one of those things but so but so you know it's a whole different headspace about the song when we came in and did it with new musicians and exactly. it's sensational um, one of my favorites is questions and answers I, oh yeah I, I like the concept of the question is why do you have to be so mean woman and then there's a second part of the song you know where you try to give the answer and it's like this yin and yang and uh, I remember having a lot of fun with that. That's going to be a lot of fun live. I mean, a lot of these are going to be a lot of fun live. I mean, out of all the songs, I'm going to list them out here. Notches, Heart Never Waits, Time Clocks, Questions Answer, Mind's Eye, Curtain Call, Loyal Kind, Hanging on a Loser, Known Unknowns, borrowed from Donald Rumsfeld. Um, the, the, what's your favorite song on the record? Oh, I tell you, the first eight are all up there for me. I mean, the first eight are... are I mean, I, I, that's not quite fair. I, I, love, I love this record. I think this is a masterpiece. I really do. I think um, Mind's Eye has got such a special spot in my, in my, uh, in my heart. I just love Mind's Eye. I love, also, also, I love Notches. I love Time Clocks. When the chorus and Time Clocks hits, it's just like, it's something from a Pink Floyd record, but actually better sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, it's... Uh, yeah. Huge chorus, and um, and we and you know, I just you know I I am such a fan of this record, and I am unreservedly a fan of it, and I I literally think it's the best thing you've ever done, and I think in I think it's the best thing I've ever done. I think it's the best record I ever made, and I and I, I you know I'm proud of a lot of the records that I made, but I think it's the best record I've ever made. We've, uh, you know, um, you know, we've had a lot of adventures. Our, our music has changed a lot, but it's like it's so good to be sixteen years. By the way, by the way, not to be an asshole, it's it's so lovely to hear that uh, that, that your your studio is completely soundproof. Um, you know what? This guy is right outside, and 
they've never there's never been anything out here he is like that far away from you and it's i said so to nice him when i go that studio is completely soundproof you're you're in this vacuum it's like the vacuum of he, he's on the other side of the wall he's that far away and it's i guess it's it's eight eight o'clock in the morning in a restaurant in the covid restaurant right and it's like you know I, I'm, I'm going to go out there. I, see, I went in there and, I, and they've never knocked ever before. And they decided because it's COVID and the restaurant's shut that they're going right. to do some repairs today. Well, uh, renovations. Kevin Shirley, thank you for this wonderful hour of informative, banging, enter, entertaining banter. You it's know, it's great hard, to see you, Joe. It's hard to interview family. I've interviewed my, uh, my mom and dad and you. So that's, that's, it's, you know, you are family to me. And, and, you know, we, we go back a long time, and you know it's 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 strange because when we first started working together, like and Roy said, I think Kevin Shirley's going to produce. I think Kevin Shirley's big time. What's he want with me? Like I'm fat, jolly, and had long hair. You know, I was now that's me. No, listen. All I want is a house. All I, we're in, we're up in week ten of lockdown. All I need is a hairdresser, a housekeeper. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. We're keeping it real here, but you know, like you know, for the audience out there, Kevin goes, you know, because because over the years when I got when I lost weight the now second time in my life, um, Kevin will always come to me every once in a while when I get grumpy and overworked and be like, "Man, you were so much nicer and happier when you were fat." <laughs> I was like, you know, I was fat and jolly. Yeah, you were. Yeah. It was. Yeah, I remember those times wandering around the streets in Germany and uh, look at me. Brought more right. hours. Come on, I, what, what, look at me. You know, it's, it's. I'll tell you what. One thing I, I, I take my hat off to you. It's been interesting watching you grow, and it's been really fun watching you grow into fandom, which you have. You have a big fan base. I mean, I, I remember you. You know, on MySpace with like thirty-two fans, and yeah, nothing. And, and and really, I do remember it, and it's been it's, it really. It's been fascinating watching how someone transitions to success and embraces it and struggles with it. And it's, you know, it's been cool and you've done a good job. I, know, so I, I feel blessed that we were able to, to, to find a way to market ourselves on social media. Back when social media was, was people with the biggest complaint people had was like, I'm so sick, sick and tired of hearing about people's lunch, you know, and now it's become this toxic, horrible place that, that everyone's addicted to. And and you know it's it's hell we're we're doing this on social media what am I talking about this on the like, fucking YouTube you know but it's but it's just this 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 crazy time in in our lives you know where it's it's been weaponized and it's just it's just a horrible thing I feel I feel blessed that that you and I were able to kind of uh, our the first couple records that we did were able to just go out there and people were still enjoying music for 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 the in the purest form you know it was kind of a new frontier and you know now it's just whatever but um but uh thanks for being here kevin well, thanks for having me joe it was a blast man i look forward you know, to seeing you too yeah we, we don't pay anybody for this i mean he, brad paisley did it for free too so okay now you tell me see this is we get the we we, we get it in the can mm -hmm. and then and then tell you it's not right Ladies Always lovely to see you, Joe. Good to see you. Ladies and gentlemen, Kevin Shirley. This has been live from Nerdville. Don't forget to purchase your brand new crisp in the box copy of Time Clocks out October 29th.